You guys know how much I love nursing schools. Well, we have another one that wants us to tell you about their MSN and DNP family nurse practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. And right now, they are offering tons of scholarship opportunities starting at $10,000 for both of these programs. You know, I'm in the midst of getting my MSN. And let me tell you, I wish I would have known about these scholarships when I first enrolled. Visit them at smumsn.com and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's smumsn.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and you can also see what they pay the stipend the hourly rate all of that i'm a travel nurse now with trusted health and i absolutely love working for them so go to trustedhealth.com be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today Hello, everyone. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back for another week of mixing a little true crime and and news with some nursing and just having a whole lot of fun doing it, making this little podcast. Been doing it now for about three years, and I like it. So I guess I'll just keep on doing it as long as you guys want to listen to it. But before I introduce my guest host, I want to remind you all who are living in Tennessee and Georgia that the state student nurse associations for each of those states have invited good nurse bad nurse to do a show in front of a live audience at their conferences so the one in tennessee is going to be the weekend of september the 25th we'll be there on that saturday and the georgia conference is the weekend of october 8th and we'll be there that friday the 8th so if you're a student and planning on going to the conference please stop by and say hello i would just love to get to meet you guys and And if you're absolutely desperate for entertainment at any event that you happen to be planning, you could drop me an email and we will see if we can work something out. I'd love to to come to your event as well. So I guess we can get started here. I would like to introduce my guest host for this week. You guys are, it's going to be a brand new person you've never heard of before. (laughs) No, it's not. You guys know my good friend and fellow podcaster, David Metzger who has been on our show several times. Welcome back, David. So great to have you. Tina, you know, I miss you. I'm so glad to be back. I always love it when you come on the show. You're definitely a fan favorite. And I'm really excited to get to feature you today as our good nurse story. Oh my God, I can't believe it. I know. Well, that just, you know what that means. We've talked about this for a year and it means that David's book released finally it's been a little over a year since i met david and we and we've been talking about the book it's out so i want to feature david as the good nurse story we can talk about his book and all of the wonderful things that he talks about in his book and we're actually after the show going to play an audio version of the first chapter of the book so you guys stick around for that it's going to be a lot of fun and really interesting very exciting so we can get started with this bad nurse story. This one is very, it's disturbing. I mean, there's a lot of uh, components to the story. And I, of course, that there is an element of true crime to each week. That's part of what makes our show unique is we sort of combine that. But the story is disturbing. And I just sort of want to put a little bit of a trigger warning there for people because there there's some gun violence and some things that happen. But 
if you stick around, it is an it is an interesting story. And I feel like David, we're going to kind of talk, try to talk a little bit about some cautionary tales, maybe. Absolutely. I was a little hesitant to say this, Tina, but one of the main characters in this story is also named David, and. I was I was wondering if if you did that on purpose to make me uncomfortable or if it was just a subconscious act. It is definitely something I would do on purpose. There's no doubt about that. I I know this. <laughs> but no, I this it, I mean it, come on, the name David is a very common name. But it does seem to happen a lot that we we get the bad doctor or the bad nurse is a is a David. I don't know. I just feel like it's it's a lot of bad press for me. David is here to prove all of these other Davids wrong and it's going to David it's going to make you look even better. I'm a good guy. You're the good David. <laughs> good David, bad David. <laughs> it's good David, bad David. So in 1987, Dr. David Stevens by the way, that's not even true. This the the doctor in this story is not a bad person. So we were messing mm, around and joking. Yeah, we'll, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, everybody <laughs> does things. Okay? Everybody Every, has their thing. Everyone makes mistakes. <laughs> so in 1987, Dr. David Stevens was a prominent heart surgeon. He moved to Hattiesburg to establish a cardiovascular program at Forest General Hospital. This is in Mississippi. His colleagues said that the before he moved there, there were no heart surgeries that were happening. So he literally brought heart surgery to the to miss the state of Mississippi. It was accompanied by his wife, Karen, and two children. So if you had a heart problem in Mississippi before this, you'd have to go to another state? Is that what happened? Yeah, exactly. Gosh. They didn't do open heart surgeries there. So What about closed heart surgery? Did they have that? With, Is that a thing? Like, you're talking about like a heart cath? Or I don't know. Yeah, sure. Like where you would go in and maybe put a stent in, where you go in like through the groin. Yes. Don't, now you just made me put an glasses on. <laughs> mm, what do you, what do you <laughs> Don't mean? even go there. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't go there. <laughs> but all I know is that there have been a lot of shows done on this story. And so when I was watching the, the shows, the different interviews, one of the, one of his colleagues said that before he came, came there, there were no, heart surgeries, I was assuming open heart surgery, that he, he, he's a cardiovascular surgeon. So when you need the cardiovascular surgeon, they're the ones that get the drill saw out and it, you know, and th there goes your sternum, you know, it's serious stuff. Yes. It's very serious stuff. And they're excellent at what they do. And he brought that to this whole, whole state, which is amazing. Absolutely amazing. But he started building a new life there and Everything was going well, but in March of 1996, his wife, Karen, confronted him at their home about an affair that David was having with another woman. And Tina, let me just step in here for a second. Mm -hmm. How many episodes of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse have you done? It's like 140-something, almost 150. Okay, so in, in all those episodes... When one person accuses another person of infidelity, mm -hmm. how often has that actually been true, that there was an unfaithful partner? In the stories that I've done, that someone accused someone of being unfaithful, and they actually, and it was true that they were? Yes. I would say most of them. <laughs> so 100%? I don't know if it's 100%, because sometimes there are some crazy people out there who are so paranoid. Though I do think I remember some stories where, you know, it was like, she was just sure that he was having an affair, you know. 
And then the person is over there with a little halo over their head, like, I didn't know anything, you know. <laughs> we were just friends. <laughs> what? <laughs> so there was obviously enough evidence. It was going on. It was true. It wasn't like... There's lots you know, of affairs going on. It just, it seems to me, you know, the older I get, it just seems like everybody's having an affair, except you, you and me and our right. partners. No, no, no. Yeah. We're the little, literally the only four people in the entire world. <laughs> No, I I think that these stories are spread out over decades and decades. You know, the stories that I do, I have to find them. And there's a lot of people that get married and things happen. And yes, infidelity, unfortunately, is relatively common. But they, I also believe there are a lot of amazing relationships out there. People, you know, marriages and unions or partnerships or whatever that people are very faithful to each other and have wonderful relationships. But I, I know that the stories that I tend to focus on here, unfortunately, there's a lot of this stuff that's yeah, going on. I guess so. yeah. that's why it's called bad nurse. I know. Well, and the thing is that those acts tend to have major, major consequences, not just the immediate pain that you cause from, you know, someone finding out that you're unfaithful, but the repercussions afterwards of that causing someone to get so upset that they then do something that they regret mm, and yeah. you know just kind of ripping through. It's like the first domino. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is a really difficult story, and what happened here is just unimaginable and so incredibly tragic. It's it's one of these stories that by the time you get to the end, you look at it and you just go, "If he could have just only." you know, been strong enough to re recognize what he had and work on his marriage instead of stepping outside of his marriage and wanting, to, you know, something he shouldn't have had, you know, because that is literally what caused all of this devastation. Well, it was the first domino, as you said, that led to all of this devastation. Yeah, it's a great way to start a bad nurse story, just a little bit of infidelity. And then yeah. just, just watch. Just watch the dominoes fall. It's just not going to be good. Fall. Well, in March of 1996, like I said, she confronted him at their home about the affair. And allegedly this nurse that was working for him in his practice, her name was Stephanie Kennedy, was the person that he was having an affair with. So one of the doctors that was interviewed, I love this guy so much. You guys should really go back and watch some of these interviews. This was the one show I was watching is called Accident suicide or murder and the the doctor is so <laughs> cool he's so he's just a I, anyway i really like this guy and he he's sitting there just so proper and he says stephanie was just a little bit baldy <laughs> what does that even mean i'm not from your part of the country i'm not well this he's from mississippi so or well that he sound he was definitely had a little bit of a southern draw and there are different dialects and the south is not all one you can't just paint us all with one brush every there's there are differences please don't but we're all great let's just leave it at that but <sighs> anyway he, he i loved it he was like stephanie was just a little body and i loved the way he said it and i was like googling what is a body for what is that i just had to know what that was and it's just someone who like makes like crass jokes and you know inappropriate sexual comments and so you know i kind of doubt she was from the kennedy clan um if she is she's definitely from 
the Ted Kennedy clan. Uh, <laughs> she's a black, black sheep of the yeah. Kennedy clan. <laughs> Distant relative, uh, the Baldy relative. Oh, gosh. So all the Kennedys aren't listening anymore. I've just totally, you know. No, they've all I've, died in plane crashes or assassinations pretty much. Oh, my gosh. That's, <laughs> surely there's some left. Anyway. Where we're we're alien, David. Every time we do a show together, we alienate so many people. I mean, that's really my goal. Is that not your goal? They're not my (laughs) listeners. (laughs) I always get emails afterwards, like, I cannot believe you two. You are so heartless. How could you say such a thing? And I'm just like, "Uh, I don't know. I was just talking randomly. David was saying stuff, and I was laughing about it. I don't know. That's just what I do. I think that's a moment to talk about nursery humor because we see so much Mm -hmm. in the world that is disturbing that. You know, I think it's it's very healthy for us to make jokes about subjects that are hard for other people. I agree. I agree. So if, you know, and, and also there's the people who love the true crime portion that are, get so frustrated at conversations like this because it's just like, but you guys just get to the story. And then our tried and true people, they just keep, li- I feel like they're just like, they'll eventually stop talking about this stuff and go back to the story. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. But anyhow, I feel like it keeps it light, you know, I don't like to get too dark. So it's about to get dark real fast, though, because, yeah, yeah. In fact, if you don't want to hear this, you may want to skip ahead a couple of minutes because it's it's not nice. In early 1995, court record, court, some court records say 1996, but there's that's the funny thing when you start researching this stuff is it's not always easy to know. Honestly, it doesn't matter. What happened was Karen found out about the affair, confronted her husband, and then in the heat of an argument, she grabbed a gun because she was just so upset and trying. Most most of her family, I think, believed that she was just trying, and David believes that she was just trying to get his attention and just show him, you know, how how much she was hurting. But when she did, she had the gun close to her mouth and it went off. And so... She survived initially, but she was paralyzed from the neck down and eventually died from the complications in April of 1995. Tragic. A month later. Oh, it was horrible. And it was officially ruled a suicide, but Dr. Stevens did not want it to be ruled a suicide. He said that it was an accident. She did not intend to do it. But the definition of suicide, isn't that just that you killed yourself? I mean, in te- in te- even if it's an accident, she, mm. she, it was something she was doing that... I don't know. Do you have to be suicidal know. to commit suicide? Well, I just, you know, just like homicide, it's just you kill someone else. Yeah, I think you do, though, because you... I think the definition of suicide is that you kill yourself. But right. why would you kill yourself unless you But you can suicidal? kill yourself. Mm. It can be an accidental accident. suicide. I think that would just right. be accidental death. But you still are killing yourself. Yeah. So it's an accidental suicide. Accidental suicide. Yeah. Right. I mean, so I think it's splitting hairs, but I think Dr. Stevens. We're so smart. Lord. (laughs) (laughs) People are like, these people are so ridiculous. So smart. (laughs) (laughs) They're so intelligent. (laughs) But, and see, and this is how we can't, I can't stand the dark stuff. So we tend to to go to the lighter side to try to talk about something else. It's like, I don't want to d- deal with the direct darkness of this, but it is so incredibly sad. He felt like it was unfair to her because he didn't want, you know, her, that legacy for her, that she, 
intentionally took her life, she would not have done that to her children. And I think that was the point of, that the family didn't want her children to to grow up believing and everyone and believing that she would have done that to them because they're, they're saying she would not. It was a, it was completely an yeah, accident. And to this day, there is such a taboo for people who take their own life. I think a lot of people don't understand how you could be in so much pain that you'd actually want to kill yourself. But it's it's definitely a thing. Yeah, it definitely is. It's hard for, for any of us, I think, to comprehend, but we just have to try to have compassion for people yeah. wherever they are, you know. This whole situation was very suspicious, though, because she was stabilized and then transferred to like a long-term care facility where she was on a ventilator, but she was trached. Mm -hmm. And so she was able to function. She was stable. She was aware. She was alert and oriented. This It's not like her... It's not as though she... Ha that this happened and then she went to the hospital and then ev eventually succumbed to the injury. She was completely stable. And then for some reason, there was some sort of an accident. Something happened where she was the disconnected from the ventilator for an extended period of time and she died. Sounds like another bad nurse story. Yeah, it definitely does. It was very suspicious. It was never investigated. I, I mean, uh, there was there's no evidence of it ever being investigated, which is very interesting. And as we get into the story, I think a lot of people are going to be going, wait, what about back there? You know, because just keep that in the back of your mind. When we're kind of going through the story. So David was very guilty and depressed over Karen's death. He um, it really bothered him. But he did continue to have a relationship with Stephanie openly. Yeah, they were married in 1997. And shortly after his marriage to Stephanie, he suffered a stroke. He had to be hospitalized. He missed some time from work. Lost, he lost part of his eyesight. And at this point, you, he really couldn't perform any surgical procedures the way he was before. You know, very sad situation. Yeah, mostly because once again, you could not get open heart surgery in Mississippi. Well, once he established his practice and brought brought it there. I'm sure there were other CT surgeons that came aboard and I'm sure got more and more popular because that was back in the what late 80s. And now we're talking about over well over 10 years later. So I'm sure it was established, but had to be sad for him totally. to have, you know, have that happen abruptly like that. In 1998, he began suffering from symptoms of hepatitis C. Uh, he had been diagnosed with hepatitis C uh, years earlier, but had been asymptomatic. And so he started getting having symptoms from that. And he was diagnosed with uh, diabetes. And so issues with his blood sugar, all of the things that go along with that, of course, is going to make it difficult for him to practice surgery. And in an attempt to treat and slow the symptoms of his hepatitis C, he underwent a couple of courses of interferon therapy. So he was making some progress, but what happened instead of that therapy actually helping him is it caused severe damage to his liver. Yeah, David is not having a good year. No, it is terrible, terrible. So by 2000, his illnesses had really taken their toll. He wasn't able to work at all. He started drawing disability benefits from a policy that he had and 
requested that the clinic that he worked for before would allow him to continue practicing medicine by reading diagnostic studies, but he was turned down by the board of uh, directors for a full-time position, but given a part-time position uh, there instead. So he went from making $50,000 a month to $6,000 a month. Wow. That's definitely a change in lifestyle, kind of like from lobster dinners to SpaghettiOs. Yes. Yeah. It's very sad. And I'm sure that you know, he had savings and it, it was probably not so much the financial part of it as much as just that's his work. That's something that he can be proud of and something he worked really hard to build. It takes such a long time to get through all of the different modes of education that they have to do. You know, they go to get their undergrad and then go to medical school mm-hmm. and then do residency and then do their fellowship and then go into a specialty like cardiothoracic surgery. And by the time they really get to where they're practicing high level medicine, they're usually in their, yeah, they're in their thirties. And so that's not a long time to get to really enjoy being at that level. Yeah. It really makes me think about how we define ourselves, you know, what's Mm -hmm. important to us and, you know, what role makes us think about who we are. I mean, if you were all of a sudden unable to be a practicing nurse, like how would that, how would that affect you? I would hope that I would be able to be happy and content doing something else that I was able to do. If I couldn't physically do that, maybe I could teach other people, Yeah, you know, maybe motivate other people, teach other people. I don't know. I would hope that I, I wouldn't like hang my whole entire life on one type of work and then something happens and I can't do that anymore. And then life is not worth living and honestly, I don't think that's how David was. And when when we kind of get into the story, well, I'll see what you think. Cause no, I agree. It's a cautionary mess, cautionary tale about mm-hmm. you know what you define as important in your life. Yeah, for sure. So Stephanie's health started to f- to fail as well. So he's going through all of this stuff, and then by two thousand and one, she had severe complications from Crohn's disease. And she also broke her hip, so was having some mobility issues. She was unable to work as well. So they are both unemployed, and they had to hire a nanny to care for Stephanie's two children, who were, I guess, younger, young enough that, that they required that someone who you know is able to get around and be active. Yeah, but can we put this in context? Stephanie is in her late 30s, and I'm guessing Dr. David is in his 40s or early 50s, but... They're, they sound like, like super old people. <laughs> like they are just not, their bodies are falling apart. Like this is really mm. strange to me. What do you think? It is. I would think that if you didn't have all these medical complications, that it shouldn't be a problem for someone that age to be able to, to manage, you know, be able to work and be able to have, take care of your children without a nanny. But they both had suffered a lot physically, medically, you know, having hepatitis C, having the, you know, liver failure and he, diabetes and all of those things mm-hmm. that he had going on. And with her, Crohn's disease is a debilitating oh, yeah. illness. I've taken care of Crohn's patients before. It's, it's rough. It's so awful. So, so awful. And then she broke a hip. So I, yeah, it's a, for as young as they were, it definitely sounds like they were, they were really struggling. Yeah, take care of your health people. It's honestly, it's such a cliche that health is the most important thing, but it, Absolutely is. 
I mean, I think Tina and I know, especially we see so many sick people that when you don't have your health, it just life is honestly not worth living. <laughs> I don't know that I would say life is not worth living because I think that yeah, that was extreme. Yeah, and because I I think there are a lot of people who who have things happen. You know, think things happen, and you know you do you can have limited mobility or you can have have things change. Your whole life can just change, and what you thought was going to be your career now maybe can't. Yeah. Uh, last week, though, we talked. I talked to Adrienne from the Nursing Uncensored podcast, and our good nurse was the seated nurse. She's on Instagram as the seated nurse. She was. She's in a wheelchair. She's been in a wheelchair since she was twelve, and she was working at the bedside there there for a while in the in a wheelchair so so i think people can do whatever they want to do for the you know for the most part but i also think that you can overcome and and you can kind of redefine yourself if you need to that's absolutely true and and i also feel like there's so much to learn about yourself when when you are not healthy because it it just brings everything into a new context i guess what Mm -hmm. i meant to say is that health is such a blessing and it can Mm -hmm. really change your life when you don't have it yeah and sometimes it's stuff that we do to ourselves because we're not eating the way we should or not being as active as we should. And sometimes it's just things just pop up out of nowhere, you know, and you're just like, I did nothing. And all of it, I was doing everything right. And this stupid cancer just came out of nowhere, you know, just how it works. So there they were, both of them unemployed. They had a nanny that was take, helping to take care of Stephanie's two children. They also had a, some sort of a healthcare worker that would come in and help to look after them. And by this time, David's condition had worsened to the point where he was placed on an organ transplant list and he was needing a liver transplant because diabetes had worsened. I'm, I'm guessing the and, hep C was what really uh, right. put his liver at risk. Well, the hep C would have been what damaged his liver. Yeah, plus, and then, I mean, uh, plus the medication. Yes. And diabetes is something that will wreak havoc on your entire body. Oh, yeah. Every part of it. And so it's just going to make Poorly controlled so diabetes. Much worse. I mean, I know so many people who've lived long, long, satisfying lives, but they're experts at controlling their, di- their diabetes. But if you don't control it, yes. it can wreak havoc on your life. It is true. It's true. There are people who have diabetes, type, type 1 diabetes, that do such an excellent job that they, their A1Cs are better than people who don't have diabetes. So he was, he got to the point he was having to wear an insulin pump in order to manage his diabetes. And it would automatically, of course, inject insulin whenever at different intervals. So on May the 1st in 2001, Stephanie woke up that morning and found David lying in the bed, completely lifeless. She ran into, I guess the nanny was there and she ran into the kitchen and she was like, David is dead. And the nanny's like, what are you like? You can just imagine that must have just been such a shock. Like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And she's like, I guess I need to call 911. The deputy coroner uh, who investigated the case um, spoke with apparently Dr. Philip Rogers, who was David's treating physician, and concluded that David had died of natural causes. I'm sure that's true, Tina, because you wouldn't be doing the show about this case if, if it wasn't, right? Mm-hmm. You're right. And that was it. The end. Oh, I guess we can get started oh, with a good ner- story. Yeah, let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we can get started. No, no, that's not exactly how this story ends. 
We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. You guys, a career in nursing is more than just a job. It's a lifelong journey of learning and growing. And professional development is key for any nurse hoping to advance their career. So how about you? Are you ready to take your career to the next level? If so, now is the time for you to get your certification in nursing. Earning your certification is a major professional milestone. It's a seal of approval recognized by professional peers, hiring managers, and patients. It signifies your commitment to excellence, your level of competence, and can make you more marketable in a competitive field, offering 18 different certifications, including 12 specialty certifications. Whether you're looking to earn your first certification, ready to renew, or exploring new certifications, they are there to make the entire process as easy, affordable, flexible, and painless as possible. Whatever your practice level or desired specialty, they can help you prepare your exam with a range of affordable tools and resources designed to set you up for success. And their commitment to you goes well beyond the exam. They provide all the ongoing support, advocacy, guidance, and resources that you need throughout your nursing career. This is your career, and you deserve the best. At ANCC, they're going to be there to help you every step of the way. So visit pages.nursingworld.org forward slash GNBN to learn more. That's pages.nursingworld.org forward slash GNBN. And we'll put that link on our website. If you want to just go to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, you can click on it from there. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And I have plantar fasciitis. So now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. At first glance, you can imagine, though, this guy is in stage liver disease. He's very sick. He Not only is he in stage liver disease and on a transplant list for a liver transplant, but he also has other comorbidities going on that he's dealing with, including having an insulin pump, you know. So they looked at that and went, wow, he died peacefully in his sleep. And they weren't that, you know, surprised. So they didn't really see any indication of foul play, didn't probably suspect it, figured, you know, maybe something happened with his insulin pump and it malfunctioned. They didn't know. But as customary practice, the coroner's office drew a couple of vials of blood from his body and sent them to the crime lab for analysis. 
And the lab report revealed that a chemical called laudanacine, which is a metabolite of a hypnotic anesthetic drug called atracurium, which is basically, I looked that up because I was like, what is that? I don't really, you know. It sounds like something that an apothecary would make. Atracurium, when I think of it, I think of ecuronium mm, or, is that a paralyzing, you know, That's a paralyzing drug, right? That you give right. for That's what I was wondering. It, yeah. So that's what I was wondering. And when I looked it up, it, it did say that it had, you know, like a neuromuscular blocking agent kind mm-hmm. of a medication. So they found that in a sample of his blood. So after receiving the lab report, they did a full investigation and... We're like, mm, something's not quite right here. On June 1st, 2001, Officer Rusty Keys of the... Rusty Keys? Ooh, I love that name. <laughs> it sounds like a point. That is a good name. It sounds name. like a stripper's name. I think it sounds like an awesome <laughs> like sheriff name from Hattiesburg, No, it's like a sheriff who starts out as a sheriff, but then takes off, off his clothes. <laughs> oh, gosh. Welcome, I Rusty so. Keys, to the stage. <laughs> Rusty Keys. <laughs> I think it's a great name, you guys. Just please don't send me emails, you guys. <laughs> Dear Tina, please do not have Nurse David back on the show. He is just a disgusting young man. That boy. No. <laughs> I I just thought Rusty it was an interesting keys. name. It's it's a great it name. It's a great name. It's, if you think it's his real it's name, it's a cool name. I bet it is. I bet it okay. is. Okay. I mean, Rusty might be a... Like a nickname. Nickname. Okay. Yeah. His name, let's just... Harold Keys. <laughs> Rusty Keys. <laughs> so, oh gosh, listen to this. So, Rusty Keys of the Hattiesburg Police Department, along with Benedict, visited the Stevens home and met with Stephanie regarding the lab report. So, I bet this was an interesting meeting here. Stephanie's thinking, okay, all of this has happened. We're moving forward. I don't have anything to worry about. And here come the police. Like, can we talk about this lab report and some blood that we drew mm-hmm. out of David's body right after he left? And you know what Stephanie what? Stephanie was like, you your blood? That's what she said. <laughs> you your blood? And huh? all the while, please ignore mm-hmm. the gigantic bottle of Ladenosine on the counter next to the syrup. Ladenosine. I... I I just cannot imagine what she must have been thinking because she had to have at this point. I'm she's probably thinking. I mean, they ruled it death. Yeah, she, you know. she thought she was in the clear. Mm-hmm. She thought she was in the clear. But if she was in the clear, as you said or pointed out earlier, she would not be on this, not on this part of the podcast anyway. She claimed no knowledge of what the drugs were or how they could have gotten into his system. And so the police department continued on investigating. They subpoenaed phone records, banking information, David's medical records. They really started looking into the whole thing, which good for them. Yeah. I'm glad they did. Because it would have been so easy to just, yes, it is. And I'm glad that they did. It would have been easy, I feel like, though, for them to just be like, well, the coroner said it was from liver failure. He obviously was sick we'll close this and move on. But they investigated it and took it further and they did their job. So good old rusty really, keys. Good old rusty keys. Definitely. 
On June the 25th of 2001, Keyes and Benedict received an order from the Forest County Circuit Judge Dickie McKenzie. These names. Dad David. These names. I know. Dickie and I Rusty. Like <laughs> There's wonderful. Benedict. This is great. But they wanted to have his uh, body exhumed for an autopsy. And I do remember one of the shows, the police officer saying that he was very careful about this because he didn't want her knowing that he was doing it. So they went really early in the morning, you know, when no one, no one would be out and about and did this, took care of it. But they did reveal that the cause of death was from the Ladonacine uh, overdose. Mm -hmm. Also, in incidentally, while they were checking all of that, because they checked the the tissue around the insulin injection site, you know, the site where the port goes or the little needle, line goes the in needle. The catheter. Yeah. They checked that whole area around where that catheter goes in. And not only did they find that laudanosine or whatever that is, but they also found atomidate in that area. And that is a sedative that's administered almost exclusively in surgery mm -hmm. under while someone is um, on a ventilator. Somebody definitely had so, a plan here. Mm, yeah, there was no reason why that would have been there. Just done. They revealed, the investigation revealed that David maintained a deferred compensation plan with MetLife Insurance Company, which at the time of his death was valued at approximately $732,000. Do you mean, Tina, do you mean to tell me that Stephanie actually had the opportunity to benefit financially from Dr. David's death? I, I just, yes. I can't believe it. I know it's shocking. It's shocking. Well, on May the 1st, 2001, the day of his death, MetLife sent out a standard form letter regarding participant renegotiations of payout dates to all the participants in the maximum deferred compensation program. So this is something that happened every year. David would always choose to defer it. And just let, no, I'll just let it ride. We'll just let, you know, I, <laughs> rather than saying, I think this year I'll take the $700,000, he would just be like, no, let it ride. We'll just keep on letting it make more money. Mm -hmm. Well, it just so happens right at the same time that this happened is when this letter went out. And so on June 14th, 2001, MetLife received the form purportedly signed by David and dated April the 30th, 2001. But I don't understand. How was Dr. David able to sign these insurance papers after he had died? Hmm. Hmm. That's a great question. It is a great question. Thank you. I appreciate it. Stephanie, I don't think thought that any of this was going to be investigated because no clearly it, yeah anyone would would realize like i can't do this oh no so she had to have somehow in her mind thought that this is all going to look like an uh natural death it's all you know i will get away with this there's no chance in he double hockey sticks <laughs> that <laughs> would you say that in real that, life tina mm -hmm. okay <laughs> Okay, I'm going to have to leave now. <laughs> <laughs> There's no chance that that I'm going to be investigated because who would do that? I I'm t I'm tired of saying this, but come on people. What if you, it, you don't stop it. Just don't think you're going to get away with yeah. anything. You're not. If you're going to commit a crime, just have some pride in your work. Do it well. 
Don't leave the bottle of ladonisine on the counter for the investigators to see. You know, give make them work. Make them work for a living. Well, I just think that there is not a chance that you're going to be able to pull this off. No, it's too complicated. Yeah, it's way too complicated. But there are so many people out there that think they can outsmart the police and detectives and that they're going to just somehow just be like, oh, well. And if if you have if your husband has liver failure and all these other issues and died in his sleep and it and even the coroner even said natural causes and she's coming under suspicion, just forget it. Don't even try. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. get that thought out of don't your head. Don't commit crimes. Just yeah. don't do it. Make other plans. Make other plans. It's not not worth it. But anyway. So this happened. So Basically, what's happening with this insurance policy is it gets there on May the 1st. It, well, that's the day that it was sent out. It was signed on April 30th. Okay. And they received it on June the 14th. Mm-hmm. But the detectives found out that she was very open about pretty much just wanting to have a lot of money and wanted a nice lifestyle. She quickly married a handyman, remarried a handyman named Chris Watts in Las Vegas. And when I first read that name, I was like, is that not the name of that man in Colorado that killed his wife and little girls? I don't know. You would know better than me. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. So I was just like, whoa, (laughs) that's weird. But Anyway, I'm sure this Chris Watts was very nice. I would not be so sure of that. But anyway, Uh, you know, what's interesting, and I don't think this is covered in the story from what I see, but Mm -hmm. it's so hard for me to believe, one, that Stephanie did this on her own. And two, that Mm -hmm. I don't see any mention of Chris Watts being accused of being a partner in this crime. I don't know if he was. And I'm just going to put myself out there and say they should look into this. Well, we'll see as we get on into it. I, I don't think that they're. I don't think there was any reason for him to be involved okay. with this. He was just a nice Las Vegas man. I think so. So the police department, is, now they have some information, okay? They have the toxicology report. They have the insurance policy that was signed by David after, you know, post-mortem. After he died, which is an amazing feat. Exactly. So they have all of this information and they decide... I think we can probably make an arrest yeah, at this point. So they arrested time. Stephanie. They arrested her on her 35th birthday. And <laughs> Happy birthday. Right. Can you come with us, please? She's 35. <laughs> and she, 35 years old, she'd already had a, a broken hip. And what else was wrong with her? She was a mess. Yeah. Which is crazy to me. Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease. Okay, go on. Mm-hmm. So... They arrested her on her 35th birthday and they indicted her for the murder of her husband. And she was arraigned on April the 14th, 2003. The trial was set for September the 8th, 2003. They had so much pre-trial publicity around this case because he was such a popular surgeon, a popular doctor in this area for because of what all he did. And it was a relatively small town that they had to select a jury from another county. Also during the pretrial hearing, the, the trial court announced that CBS television was going to be allowed to cover the proceedings and apparently wanted to do like a documentary about the case. And they didn't object. 
state didn't object. Stephanie's counsel didn't object to it. So they were in there to televise the whole thing. So in 2003, they started a trial. It was the first major trial in Mississippi that allowed news cameras in the courtroom. And Stephanie's defense attorney, Ray Price, stuck with her story. I, the names in the story. Are so, I, Ray Price sounds like a used car salesman. Isn't he a singer? I don't know. I just like have all these names. Ray Charles is in, a singer. And some, there's not a Ray Price. Okay. I don't think so. The names just sound like, I don't know, like it's a Hallmark movie or yeah, something. Yeah, they sound, like they're made, just they sound like, made up. They don't sound, yeah, great names. But his defense was to stick with her story. Dr. Stevens had tried to kill himself after he had had a slew of bad health. So basically what she's saying is he must have done that to himself. That's why he had the automate in his tissues. Mm -hmm. That's why he had the other. I mean, it's not it's not outside the realm of possibility, but it sounds like they had enough witnesses to uh, tell the jury that this was probably not accurate. Mm, yeah, that he would have just decided, you know, I can't perform surgery anymore. I'm on the list to get a liver transplant. I am seriously ill with all these things going on. I, I just don't enjoy life. So I want to kill myself slowly and just go to sleep. And then everyone will think I died naturally. That was her defense. That's what she said happened. The detectives were just like, well, what, why would we not have found any evidence that he did that? You know, where are the vials of automate? Where are the, you know, that he used to, to fill his insulin pump? But if he was wanting to keep it a secret, maybe he would have filled the pump and then, but, but turned it off until he need, until he's ready to use it, but then disposed of every, all the evidence and then went to sleep and then turned it on. I don't know. That was her defense anyway. By all accounts, though, according to his family, he was looking forward to the future. He had made strides to improve his overall health. And although not necessarily, you know, an indication that a person is not suicidal, they ruled against suicide as a possibility because they found out that he was planning on leaving Stephanie. Hmm. So, you know, so he's planning on leaving her. According to all of his friends and colleagues, he seemed to be in a positive mood. He seemed to be looking forward to the future. He seemed to be excited about getting a liver transplant, the possibility. So I personally know that you can be all those things, be positive and appear very happy and like the whole everything is going right and still just be absolutely depressed, miserable and thinking life is not worth, you know? So absolutely. I don't think that that's necessarily, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a indication that he was considering taking his own life. But the fact that he's thinking about leaving her and making plans to do that, you know, that kind of, doesn't that give a motive for Stephanie to try to hasten things. And then she knew that that policy, I'm sure knew that that policy comes up every year. Heck yeah, it does. So they did think that she murdered her, murdered him for financial gain. His estate was worth about $3 million. And as his wife, of course, she would get a significant amount of that. His daughter took the stand to attest to her father's sound mind and made a, a statement saying that she did not believe that he would have done that 
he would not have taken his own life. The trial lasted seven days, and it took the jury about 90 minutes to decide that Stephanie was guilty. They sentenced her to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 30 years. Tina, I've listened to lots of your shows, and it seems extremely unusual that it took them 90 minutes to decide this woman's fate. Like, mm-hmm. there must have been no doubt in their mind that she did this. Yeah. As uh, a lot of my listeners know that have been listening for a while, I've been on a couple of juries. I'm so proud to let everybody know that because it just makes me an expert. And I avoid them like like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. I, I like the um, taking out, taking all of the evidence, you know, and coming up with an answer. And I, the way I look at it is, unless I was 100% convinced of it, I would not be able to say guilty or not. You know, like, I feel like I would be that person who's there for the defendant. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, you're like, a sympathetic person. Maybe yeah. so, as a fault. It's a blessing and a curse. But the way that I look at that is that the, there is someone who is being accused of something and they are they are supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And I know, I know that there are so many people who are falsely accused and falsely convicted, falsely imprisoned and falsely put to death in this country. But let's be honest, they're usually black and brown people. Let's be honest. There are many, our criminal justice system is not equitable in any shape, way or form. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. our, Our criminal justice system is an absolute mess and... There's so many things about it that frustrate me, but what are you going to do? You just have to kind of fight those battles. I mean, I guess you just make a podcast. You could definitely make a podcast for sure. Get your opinion out there. Try to change somebody's (laughs) mind. (laughs) It's just that the problem is, though, there's so many people and everybody's so busy and no one has time to stop and think about an injustice, it seems like. People are like, yes, that's bad. And then you just keep going instead of like, wait, let's all stop and do something about it. <laughs> let's go to Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. No, I got it. I, I don't have time. I don't have time to fix it. I don't have time to fix the world's injustice. It does feel like that's all there is sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, she would have had the chance for parole in 30 years and she would have been eligible for parole in 2033. But in 2006, she died of double pneumonia at the Central Mississippi Hospital. So she just definitely had a lot of of health issues. That's a sad story. It is a sad story. It's definitely a cautionary tale because as I said at the beginning of this, you look at David's life and all the wonderful, amazing things that he did and what he did, his legacy will be carried on forever, you know, in that area because he brought cardiothoracic surgery into that area. So he really made a huge difference for so many people's lives but rather than him you know being allowed to live out his days with you know his family with his children and 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 being able to enjoy the end of his life he instead lived in this situation where he had to live with the grief and the guilt and the depression caused by what happened with his first wife and that's all because of just Seeing, you know, being in the situation and just deciding, I don't want to be married anymore. I, I just want to satisfy this need that I have now, instead of working on my relationship with my wife. Yeah. You know, that's unfortunate, and it doesn't make him a bad person. It just no, it makes him very human. Just, yeah, he just made a mistake. 
but it's sad to think about the huge direction that it shifted everything in his life mm-hmm. at that point and all the people around him that it hurt. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Well, I guess we can get into our good nurse story. Can we do that? David. I'm here. Yeah. I'm here. Let's do it. Well, I'm excited about this because we've you've been on the, the show several times. So many times. And I've... I talk about you when you're not even on the show. I mention you. I'm like, yeah, David with nurse, blah, 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 blah. I know. I talk about you too to my wife. I'm like, Tina this, Tina that. She's like, who's <laughs> Tina? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I talk about you all the time. Um, like, David. I, I always, it's always David with nurse Papa or else, you know, every, everybody would think I was talking about some bad nurse or bad yeah, doctor. Yeah, because all the bad nurses <laughs> on your show are named David. It's really unfortunate. <laughs> no, but... I'm excited to get to actually delve into all of this in your your book because it's finished. And I know it's been, it's a huge accomplishment for you. I'm really proud of you. It took five years. It's an excellent book. It's very enjoyable to read. I love reading. I love listening to books. And I love to read, but I don't have as much time to actually read. So I have to listen. But it's very well written. So if you guys like writing, for any anybody that loves to just like read like me i'll just like start reading something i'll think this is the best written thing ever and it it does not matter what it is it's just the someone's ability to put words together like that i will just be like oh my gosh this is fascinating <sighs> but but the content is so wonderful and amazing too and so those two make a fabulous combination for just a wonderful book let's start out by you just kind of telling our listeners a little bit about yourself yeah my name is david aka nurse papa which is the name of my book but also of my podcast 
And I am a pediatric oncology nurse and a father of two young kids and a husband. And I wrote this book called Nurse Papa, 16 Meditations on Parenting from a Pediatric Oncology Nurse. When you said that, it sounded like I'm the father of two young, young kids and a husband. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm also a father of a husband. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a father of two kids and I am also a husband. <laughs> I'm not a single dad. I could, I could <laughs> I'm not do sure this by myself. Everyone, <laughs> I'm sure everyone else understood what you said, but my brain, of course, wants to grab onto that and go, ha ha, that's funny. <laughs> so just kind of getting into the, the book a little bit, just so people can understand like what to expect. Who do you expect the audience to be? Who would want to read your book? Who, would, who do you think is going to read it and get something out of it? I mean, Tina, it really has something for everybody. It's definitely a book that parents can buy into because my initial intention was just to tell these stories of these kids and these parents who I care for and have cared for for the last almost 14 years. But it became clear very soon that there was so much to offer from these stories and there's such great wisdom that these kids and these parents had to, to, to tell. And you know how amazing would it be to benefit from you know, their experiences without actually having to experience having a child who has cancer. So I, mm. I think parents can really dig into this book and, and understand what it might be like to go through this time and come out on the other side with a better understanding of what life is really about. But also, I think, you know, just people who are interested in a good story would really benefit from reading this book because, you know, not many people get to be that fly in the wall in these rooms there is so much human drama that occurs on a daily basis. And I really just wanted to portray that and to tell these stories in a very unbiased way. And I think it's a real statement about, you know, the state of our medical paradigm and just, you know, humans. It's just, for me, it was a, it was a great story to tell. Yes. And it, and, it, and it really is. It reminds me a little bit, not at all the... It's kind of funny. Not the writing and not the words and not the book at all. Like nothing about it except there's some for some reason I get the same feeling as kind of the chicken soup books where mm. you read them and you're just like there's something about this that makes me feel better. Do you know what I'm the chicken soup for the I soul? I absolutely do. Yeah. I know that I know that They're, that author. He's very famous. He, yeah. He's much more so famous those, than I am. <laughs> well, you're for now. just a brand new author. Brand new. You're a brand new author. Brand you're just new. now putting it out there. Give people a chance to buy it. Yeah, I think so, the idea behind that is that there's great wisdom to be found in you know mundane common mm -hmm. stories, and I totally agree. Yes, and that's the thing. If you th can think about the people and you know, people listening, if you can think about the, what people must have to go through in those circumstances, of course, no one wants to be that person. No one wants to be the person that has to go through that stuff. You don't even want to imagine it or think about it. But what wisdom must be created in those people through those experiences? Because there is a purpose. I do believe there's a purpose for everything that happens. I don't want that to be part of my purpose. <laughs> I, I, it almost nobody does. Nobody does. No one does. It's a funny thing. And I say funny in a very dark way. So as a pediatric mm -hmm. oncology nurse, I've often told myself, I am a pediatric oncology nurse. I do good work. That's what I do. There's no way that my kids will ever have cancer. Like, it's just, it's too ironic. It's just not going to happen. But that's just not true. You know, we're all subject to these same things that can occur to anyone. 
And what do you do when you're in that situation? I, I think reading this book is a real opportunity to see what, what does happen. Well, there has to be some huge life lessons that are manifested in people through going through these experiences. And so I feel like reading the the book and and in such an, you know, it is written so eloquently that you can, you can glean that wisdom from the pain that people have to go through all those experiences. You can glean that without having to actually go through it yourself because there is a purpose for, for the suffering that people have to go through. I've had to suffer in my life. My childhood was not, not a, it was terrible, honestly. And I don't have a problem talking about it now. I'm completely, I do feel like it's, it, it, there was a purpose to that. I would never wish that on anyone else. And I wouldn't want to have to go through it again. But I also am who I am because of it. And I feel like there's nothing wrong with trying to help someone else and trying to, I think that I am a very empathetic person because of that. I don't want to see other people suffer and especially children. And so I think that you could read the book, hear these, th- hear these stories. And also it might sound like it's dark or it might sound like it's sad, you'd be surprised. It's not. It doesn't feel sad, which is really interesting because David is such a a talented writer. He actually manages to somehow make you laugh and cry at the same time, which is really kind of one of my favorite things (laughs) because you're just like, you know, you can learn a lesson and just be like, oh my gosh, that is so awful. And then all of a sudden find yourself laughing about something because he's really good at interjecting these humorous, fun, kind of like just a little bit of like levity into the situation, which I'm sure is part of the coping mechanisms that you guys have to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way humans deal with pain is by finding humor in it. But Mm -hmm. I think that's a really valuable tool to have. And I think that it's also very true that even in the worst situations, there's transcendence and joy to be found. And if you are able to identify those aspects, it can be really helpful to your own understanding of who you are and you know, ultimately where you want to be. I think anyone who is wanting to have children, has children, or definitely if you're considering going into pediatric oncology, you ha- if you're considering going nursing, to pediatric oncology, don't even nursing. think about it. Right. D- nursing in general. But if you're thinking of, there are a lot of, I think, young nurses who, who that is something they want to do. They want to go straight to pediatric oncology. And I, if, if that's something that you're interested in, you don't hesitate. You have, to, you have to read the book for sure. But I think anyone, because the stories are, it's not just like, oh, it's all about, you know, children with cancer. It's not like that at all. There's a lot of personal stories in here from you and your family and your children. It's so relatable to just being a parent, being a nurse, in general, anyone, I can relate to it. And I don't have, I don't have small, ch- small children anymore. And I'm not in, I don't, I'm not a pediatric nurse and I've never dealt with cancer patients directly, only exclusively, you know, so anybody can relate to it. And if you enjoy reading at all, I just say, read it. You're going to definitely benefit from it for sure. I totally agree, Tina, but I'm biased. <laughs> what made you want to write the book? What kind of just caused you, I mean, I understand you kind of want to share experiences, but that's a huge thing to just decide I'm going to write an attack. That's overwhelming to me. I don't think I knew what I was doing, that the level of commitment that I would take. And it definitely was hard on my family life because 
you know, to, to be able to do the research and write a book like this, it, it took a lot of time and commitment. And it, there was definitely times when I should have been focusing on my family when I was not. But I will tell you a story about why I decided to write this book, if you have time. Yeah, go do it. Absolutely. It was about five years ago. And we were expecting my or our second child, my son. He was a few weeks out. And I accepted this patient whose name was Jason. And uh, speaking of failed livers, David, in the story that we just talked about, Jason also had a failing liver. And he had come into the hospital to have a liver transplant. And it was it did not take the surgeons very long to ascertain that not only was his liver failing, but he had a huge tumor wrapped around it. And it was it became very clear very quickly that he was not going to have the, the transplant. His cancer was incompatible with life and incompatible with a transplant. So he was going to die. So here you had a, a morbidly ill 15-year-old, but with some hope, who all of a sudden no longer had any hope. He was going to die. And, you know, he was my patient, and I took care of him very often over the next couple of weeks. And the amount of existential and physical pain that this kid went through, it was so overwhelming for him but also so overwhelming for me. You know, as a nurse, especially as a pediatric nurse, you're, you're caring for their bodies, but you're also caring for their hearts and their souls. And it's impossible not to get emotionally involved, to not want to just help these people, these kids and these parents, and just make it better. But ultimately, it just sometimes there's nothing you can do. There's no way you can make the pain better. There's no way you can change the situation. And it is an incredibly frustrating place to be. And I also have had that situation as a parent myself, you know, not with a dying child, but just with a suffering child, not being able to fix their pain. And it, it sucks to be that parent in that moment. But you can, you can learn, you can discover that there are some things you can do. Maybe you can't make the pain go away, but maybe you can reframe it. So I remember at one point I, I'd been bothering Jason to take a bath for just oh, like days. But, you know, just imagine being a dying 15-year-old, like just taking a bath is probably just the least important thing in your mind at that moment. But anyway, he, he eventually decided to let me bathe him. And I think mostly just so I would leave him alone. And I and a few other nurses bathed him because he was so weak, he could barely stand up. And it was a difficult experience for him. But I remember after that bath, he laid down on his bed and his hair was combed to the side and wet. And he just put his arms behind his head and he stared up at the ceiling and he took this deep, deep breath. And in that moment, it just looked like a, a boy at a beach, just like relaxing. And I'd never seen Jason like that. And I remember he looked at me and I think it was the first time he actually saw me because we had, we had such an intimate moment beforehand. And it was just, it was a really healing moment. And I remember a few hours later, I was in his room charting and I thought he was sleeping. And all of a sudden he said, David. And I was so surprised. I, I said, Jason, what's up? What can I do for you? And he said, David, do you have a cat? And I, I was so surprised. One, because he had never said my name before. <laughs> and also the question was just so odd. And I said, Jason, I do have a cat. But she mostly gets ignored these days because we also have a toddler. And he said, Oh, yeah, we have cats too, but we had to put one down because she was sick and she wouldn't eat. 
And I said, Jason, I'm so sorry that your cat died and that you had to put her down. And he said, David, it's okay. Because if you love cats, you have to get used to them dying. And, you know, in that moment, it was so clear that he just wasn't, he wasn't just talking about cats. He was talking about himself. And that if you love life, you have to be okay with dying because we all die. But there's a way that you can look at it that maybe isn't so sad. And, you know, of course, Jason died a week later, but I've never forgotten what he said to me. And it just really inspired me to want to tell these stories because they're so relatable and they're so human and so important. You know, there's so much noise out there and there's, it's such a hard world that we live in, but there's just such beauty too. And I really just want to share that. Well, thanks now. I'm not going to be able to talk the rest of this show. Tina, are you there? <laughs> no. Yeah, it's intense stuff. But, you know, I also, and I know you know this, just because of the nature of this book is, is sometimes intense. I, I did include these sections called Break from the Heartbreak, in which I just like tell a funny story about the home and the hospital that really allows the reader to find joy and transcendence in these funny moments because there's so much to be learned in these funny times too. As I like walk between these rooms of these kids who I take care of, I'm just like bouncing with happiness. It's like such a great opportunity for me to like interact with these kids and their parents. And I feel like there's so much to share and there's so much laughter that's held, that's, you know, enjoyed between all of us. You know, as a nurse, I I listen to these kids with my stethoscope and, you know, I'm not just listening to their hearts and lungs. You know, you hear so many sounds, you hear their laughter, you hear their giggles, you hear them chattering to their parents. And one thing I've learned is that, you know, even as these kids are sick and sometimes dying, they're doing so much living. They're bumping up against things, they're learning, they're making mistakes, they're hurting, they're having joy, they're having milestones. You know, you never stop living. Not until your last breath, you never stop living. You know, to hear you talking about that patient like that, it made it kind of made me. <laughs> Dang it! Shoot, I can't see because when I start crying, yeah. my stupid glasses. I'm sorry. Hold on a second. <sighs> I think sometimes I forget how hard these stories are, you know, because I've lived them and I've seen them. You know, when you start talking about these stories, I don't deal a lot with children. The hospital, the big hospital that I, I work at normally, occasionally we do get some children. We will get a 15-year-old gunshot wound or something like that, and it's always horrible. And I always am like, oh, I don't want to take care of that patient because I just, I just don't have, I don't, have, I'm not strong enough. I'm just not strong enough to do it. I just break down. But it makes me think of I picturing Jason, the, the, the patient, I've had those same types of discussions sometimes with some of my patients, adults, you know, that are some at different ages, some of them in their 20s or 30s uh -huh. or all the way up. And it doesn't even matter everyone at some point, whether they're a child or whether they're 98, everyone has to face that reality. And it's interesting because it seems like people tend to do, they do, they sort of have these moments where they're kind of thinking about it. And they'll say things like that to you and just catch you off guard sometimes. 
My husband asked me the other day, and I'm sorry, I know my voice changed probably pretty drastically at this point because I got so upset But just hearing that story. But my husband and I were just talking about, about this the other day because the hospital I'm at right now, it just seems like, well, and in, in in the other hospital too, it's just death after death after death after death. It's so much death. It's unnatural. It's not really, it, I, it's like before I might have a patient that would die every now and then, like there would be a patient that would die on the floor and then everyone would be like, oh, so-and-so's dying. And w- everyone is sort of rallying around that nurse, trying to be strong for them, trying to help, want, making sure no, but no patient ever dies alone. And, and there, you know, you take turns going in there for some reason, they don't have family. And it seems like it's happening so frequently now with this pandemic that it's this, these emotions, you're just getting worn out, just absolutely worn out. Absolutely. Gosh. But it, when I think about going through that over and over, I think about me and on, on the level that I, I, I always try to just think, okay, this person has had this many years to live and they've gone through these things. And, you know, most of the time they are older people and I can, I try to make myself feel better by thinking about the things they were able to accomplish in their life and think that we all have to go through this, but it would be really, really hard to see, you know, children who haven't had very many years and their parents and all the suffering and the pain. Yeah. I mean, it was a real transition for me too, because before I was a, a pediatric nurse, I, I couldn't conceive of a young person dying or being in so much pain. And you really just, you have to accept it if it's a job mm-hmm. you want. You have to find the joy in it. You, you have to see how you can be helpful. And that's one of the great things about my job is that there's so much opportunity to be a good person. And mm-hmm. I sometimes feel like I need that. <laughs> I need the opportunity because I have lots of judgment about myself and who I want to be and how good of a father I am and how good of a husband I am. But I, you know, I enter this place and I can just be good. And, you know, it's, it's probably a disservice to my own family because I'll, I'll sometimes come home and I'll have nothing, nothing else to give. Like my tank will be empty. And, and that's another trope in this book about, you know, my life, but also I think healthcare workers in general, and especially during this last past year, you know, there's just, sometimes there's, there's nothing left and it's, it's really difficult to live this double life when you're caring for people and then you come home and you feel like you have nothing left to give. Yeah. And it's something we all struggle with, I think. I've learned how to compartmentalize. I've always been really good at compartmentalizing. I think victims of tra- childhood trauma, especially, you are created that way because you, in order to survive, yeah. you learn very quickly how to compartmentalize and to deal with like, okay, we have the bad stuff over there, but then there's some good stuff too. And that's, what I do at work, I, in dealing with, you know, a family, an entire family on the floor or a, a wife and a husband and, you know, one dying and the other one, you know, it's just the, these things are so heavy and it's, but during, while you're working, you just can't, you can't think. I can't think about any of that stuff because as you can see, I'm very emotional and so, if I allow myself to go there, it's just way too, I wouldn't be able to do my job, clearly. I would just be my, 
I could concentrate. So I literally just am very emotionless. And sometimes I think maybe my patients probably are just like, wow, she's just so serious all the time because I, and I'm not, that's like the opposite of who I really am. Oh yeah. In these situations, I I can't, I have to shut it all off. I, I, it's almost like no emotion and just very serious and just kind of like go in, do my job because I can't, if, if I'm just like, oh, you know, like, this is so sad. Think about what's happening. I would just break down, you know, but then it's usually a couple of days later and I'm at home, you know, or something. And, and all of a sudden it just hits me like, oh my gosh, I just watched that man die. Yeah. And his wife was in the room next to him. And then she, you know, like all of a sudden it, the, the, yeah, that, it catches up the, in ways that we yeah. don't expect. And I think that's just mm-hmm. part of it. Yeah. I think we all need therapy and we all need to <laughs> learn how to find perspective in, in other people's suffering. I think that your book is therapy. That reading a book like yours, I believe, because you're reading other people's experiences. Yes. And so it can be very therapeutic. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I hope. And that's what I intended. And I truly think that, you know, somebody can read this book and come out on the other side feeling hopeful about humanity, which, gosh, it's so hard to do now. It's so hard <laughs> to feel mm-hmm. hopeful about And appreciating humanity. what you have. And appreciating what you, know, you have. Absolutely. Being content. Do you have any pl- plans to write any other books in the future? <sighs> That's a really good question, Tina. I would not tell my wife this, but I do have plans <laughs> to write another book. I definitely feel like there is a addendum to Nurse Papa, that, and I have been organizing it in my mind. But um, I also have plans for another book in which, well, gosh, I have a few other books, but one of them is, it's another book about parenthood, but kind of the lighter side of it. I think there's so many things that occur when you're a mom or dad, and when you're in the middle of it, you, you, you can't really process it. As a writer, I've been, I process, I process it all the time. And I've really been writing quite a bit about the just befuddling experience of being a dad and how that's changed me and, and how I've gone through it. So yeah, that's that's the next one coming. I hope that I, I can get it out there. So you have the Nurse Papa, the book, and then you have the podcast. Do you have any plans to expand the Nurse Papa franchise into any other creative projects? For now, I'm going to focus on my family. I'm going to focus <laughs> on um, being a good person and continuing to write more. But yeah, I, I would definitely like to create more art based upon the things I've experienced, for sure. But we'll try to make it through the next couple months first. Were you an author first? And that, like, have you always, is this something, or is it something that you just decided to do? Have you, are you trained? Did you go to school to learn how to write, or? I am fully untrained. (laughs) Wow. Um, I've always been an artist, though, Tina. You know, I was a sculptor and a painter before I was a nurse. And I truly believe that you can, take whatever experience you have and turn it into art. And that's what I've always tried to do. You know, even as a nurse, I can point to my artistic skills as a benefit. You know, as an artist, you're taught to observe the world around you and, you know, take action upon it. And that's what you're doing when you're a nurse. You walk into a room and you need to identify what is going on with this patient, not only physically, but emotionally and psychologically. And you need to put all these things together into a therapeutic plan. You know, you don't always frame it like that, but that's what's going on in our minds. That's how that's our calculus. So being an artist was a, a real asset in that sense that I was attuned to what's around me. And I've always wanted to describe my world in a way that was creative. So 
it's it just wasn't a big leap. It, there's so many stories that I've been a participant in and witnessed in the last 13 years that there was no shortage of, of material. It really just takes some motivation to put those stories out there. Well, you guys be sure and go look up Nurse Papa, the book on Amazon, right? Yep. The almighty Amazon. That's where you're going to find the book. And it's, you know, it's selling really well. And I've had really great responses from people of all walks of life. I even had a, mm -hmm. a letter from a reader recently who is, is reading the book with her 15-year-old daughter, which I thought was just so brave to be able to do that because it, it's, it's the kind of book that begs questions. And I really do believe it's a book that you can share with your loved ones and f start a dialogue about life and what you all mean to each other. Well, you guys know that you can find me at goodnursebanners.com or you can email me if you all your questions and complaints and <laughs> ideas for stories. Send your complaints at Tina for at, sure. <laughs> all of them to Tina at goodnursebanners.com. And I also want to remind you guys, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, please be a good nurse. Be a good nurse. Yeah, what David said. Chapter 1 that kid look. The long hallway of this hospital unit follows an elongated horseshoe pattern, with all of the patient's rooms oriented on the outside. These rooms have large windows and a striking view of the San Francisco Bay. When the light of the sun is allowed to pour in, the rooms feel airy and open. When the drapes are drawn shut and the overhead lights turned off though, each room can be as cool and dark as the cave of a snoozing bear. Some patients prefer their space dim and silent, as they sleep their way through indeterminate stays. Sleep can be preferable to the other states available to them. Nausea, pain, boredom, or all three simultaneously. But there are other patients who seek the stimulus of the world on the other side of the glass. They spend their days sitting on the ledge beneath the large bay windows, their noses and hands pressed against it, smudgy marks left behind. They play with their parents and siblings, scribble at homework that not even cancer can help them escape from, or watch movies on the big screen television that seems almost as large as a studio apartment I once lived in. Outside these patient rooms, nurses in royal blue scrubs, doctors in their street clothes with stethoscopes hanging around their necks, and various other hospital staff in green, gray, and light blue uniforms roam up and down the halls. The drum of their conversations, the beeping of monitors, and the occasional blare of overhead announcements ensure a steady white noise that most who work here hardly notice anymore. Visitors unfamiliar with the long layout often find themselves fully circumnavigating the entire horseshoe shape before they find the exit, which is also the entrance. Of the long line of identical doors spaced evenly along the hallway of this pediatric oncology ward, most were shut, the sounds of sick kids and their families distilled indecipherably out into the hallway. The room I was standing near was silent though. The inhabitants within saddened and struck mute. The girl inside, who once laughed, cried, endured, and grew bored in this room and others just like it, died early in the morning. Her name was Lucia. I remember her cute, chubby face and the tight curls of her brown hair, 
before it all fell out. She once wore the same flowery red dress for days in a row, despite her mom's ardent protests. Her large family sat around the bed where her body lay, sometimes speaking in hushed tones, but mostly just sitting. She was wearing that same red dress. It had thin shoulder straps. The small patterned flowers were blue and yellow. Veronica, Lucia's younger sister, could not be easily contained to a silent room. A shorter and plumper doppelganger of Lucia, she was happily playing with a small inflatable ball just outside the door, bouncing it against a wall and singing softly to herself. I first met Lucia a year or so before she died. I was a new nurse then, still walking those hallways in confused circles myself. She was a newly diagnosed cancer patient. Leukemia. The first night I took care of her, I was working with a nurse who was training me. Lucia was sick and feverish, shivering in her bed. We had to wake her shortly after midnight to draw blood from her already bruised body to determine how we would treat her. Her sleepy eyes were wide and fearful of the advancing needle that I held. My hand was shaking with nervousness, while her hand, my tiny target, was strangely still. If they were interested, the bookies in Vegas would have offered equal odds over who was more scared in that moment. Me, or the prepubescent girl from whose body I was about to draw blood. Rivlets of sweat dripped from my brow as I pushed the needle into her skin, and connected to her vein. Still standing outside the door where Lucia's body lay, I was shaken from this memory by the phone buzzing in my pocket. When I answered it, I heard the muffled request of a mother asking for medication for her vomiting son. As I walked quickly to help them, I made sure to end the call from the boy's room. I once forgot to do this before placing my phone back into the front pocket of my scrubs, and the young girl and her mother were treated to the unmistakable sounds of a grown man using the restroom. I passed by an open door. Inside was a bored teenage girl. She was lying in bed and watching TV. Her skin was pale. Her smooth head was covered by a beanie that her mom had knitted at her bedside. A catheter exited at the point on the right of her chest and connected to a tangle of clear plastic tubes that led to a humming medication pump next to her bed. A tray of untouched food sat ignored in front of her. She waved and smiled as they passed by. The next door over was closed. I could hear a loud yell from the child within, but it was not clear to me if it was a laugh or a cry. Here, where the expression of every possible human emotion is not only accepted, but expected, it can sometimes be difficult to distinguish between the two. Just before I entered the room to which I had been summoned, I could hear the boy retching and coughing inside. I noticed Veronica, Lucia's look-alike sister next to me. She had migrated down the hall while I was lost in the memory of her older sibling. She was still playfully distracted in her own little world. Veronica was quite used to this place by now, a veritable sibling appendage. The bouncing ball had escaped from her grasp, and she was chasing after it, away from the hospital room where her sister's body, still in that red dress, lay. As she skipped down the hallway, her arms stretched out in front of her, she sang loudly enough for me to hear her words. The tune was some variation of a common nursery rhyme, but the words were all her own. My sister's an angel. 
My sister's an angel. My sister's an angel. My sister's an angel. <laughs> she sang between giggles. Clearly, one of her family members had tried to explain Lucia's death in a way that a young child might understand. Her refrain reminded me of a scratch record, upon which the needle was not merely stuck, but almost willing itself into action. The ball she had been chasing came to rest against the side of the hallway. Pausing in her song, Veronica stared at me with a blank kid expression that seemed to convey neither trust nor suspicion, but rather some emotion in between. It puzzled me at the time. Now, years later, with over a decade of pediatric nursing and six years of child rearing under my belt, it is a look I have come to know all too well. It is the same faraway glance that my precocious six-year-old daughter routinely drops on me when she possesses neither the words, desire, nor patience to tell me what is really on her mind. I wanted to say something meaningful to this girl with a newly dead sister, something that would explain why this was all happening, but I had no good explanation for it. Only useless platitudes came to my mind. Ignoring me fully, she began her refrain again. This time, it was only a hum, but her words stayed with me. My sister's an angel. My sister's an angel. My sister's an angel. My sister's an angel. Then, for no apparent reason, the skipping record in Veronica's mind stopped. She picked up her ball and headed back in the direction from which she had come. <laughs>